Well, I guess I didn't surprise some of you about by exchanging an Acts sermon for the long-lost second sermon this morning on church discipline. I thought I ought to warn people in case they came and they said, well, I would have brought my outline, but I didn't bring it because I thought we were going to have Acts. And then after the announcement was made, several of you said, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> so I'm not as inscru- inscrutable as I thought I was. Um, tonight, we want to look at Matthew 18, uh, which we'll be looking at over the next several, or two or three messages as we get into the real procedure for practicing restorative discipline among ourselves. But uh, this is still yet a lesson talking about motivation. Maybe you're sufficiently motivated already. I did think as I was putting these sermons together, you know, maybe enough is enough in terms of motivating, but I guess maybe better to shove you too hard than have you almost ready to go and then stop before you begin. And uh, so tonight we're going to be talking about our attitude in recovering the stray brother, thinking first of all about the, the motive to seek, to go out and look for. Uh, oftentimes, you know, where we uh, fall short in our practice of restorative discipline because we, we don't take the initiative. And uh, it has been pointed out that... Uh, in the two passages in Matthew, Acts 5, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, uh, whether you're the offender or the one offended, you're commanded by Christ to go. So either way, you ought to take the initiative. And uh, that would be sufficient. But I think it is striking that in Matthew 18, the actual procedure for restoring a brother through this kind of confrontation, correction, forgiveness, so forth, Uh, is prefaced by a parable that has as its point the father seeks those who are lost and therefore those who are the fathers ought to seek those who are lost. The parable of the lost sheep and the seeking shepherd. We usually call it the parable of the lost sheep, but really it is the parable of the seeking shepherd. That's the wonderful thing. I mean, the fact that sheep get lost is not so surprising. But the fact that the shepherd goes and seeks that which is lost is really the point of this little parable. You know about parables. They're stories that Jesus told in order to make a particular point. Uh, They were one of his favorite teaching methods and are very, very effective. And uh, here we have one of those little parables beginning in verse 10 of Matthew 18. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, says Jesus. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety and nine in the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety and nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should be lost. When Jesus uses the parable of the seeking shepherd and the lost sheep in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the point he is making is about his own mission to seek and to save that which is lost through his redemptive work on the cross. He came to earth to die for his sheep like a shepherd seeks for a lost lamb. 
But in this particular context, in Matthew chapter 18, the point is not so much about Jesus' own mission, but about your mission and mine, and specifically about the mission of the disciples. Here he's talking about his loving pastoral concern for his weak and needy followers. And he specifically enjoins upon the leaders of the church and in a more general way upon every believer that urgent need to be willing to go looking for that which is lost. And so there is a special application of a parable like this to those who are pastors, elders in the church. And there's a more general task that each of us have in our general office as believers to seek and to restore and recover one another, even as our Father is concerned to do the same thing. So we want to look at this parable about seeking a little bit this evening, and then I want to say a word about the manner in which we ought to uh, go to seek and restore, looking at the warning about beams and specks in Matthew chapter 7, and restoring one another in a spirit of gentleness in Galatians chapter 6. So we'll see if we can at least hit the high spots on these subjects this evening in the time that we have. When Jesus tells this parable, he reminds you and I that our concern to seek and to recover the stray brother ought to parallel the concern that our Heavenly Father has for our brother or sister when they are wandering. Jesus begins with an exhortation there in verse 10. See to it that you do not look down on these little ones. Don't look down on one of these little ones, says Jesus. And as he unfolds this parable, and then as the chapter goes on in verses 15 and following to talk about the procedure for recovering the straying brother, the point is that any attitude on your part or mine of indifference to a lost brother or sister, if we approach their wandering and straying with a spirit of neglect, of unconcern, then we are showing a symptom, a serious symptom, of really looking down on, despising, holding in contempt, some of Christ's little ones. You know, it's often hard for people to understand what motivates someone who is considered to be a stickler for discipline. Whether they're hard-nosed about it or whether they're very, very gentle about it really is beside the point. If you're concerned to go looking for someone, often it's misunderstood. Uh, like here's some kind of a nitpicking heart that wants to go out and set everybody straight, it's rarely considered that this is the heart of a shepherd looking for that which is lost, to recover it and restore it. It's surprising when Paul calls us to hope all things, believe all things, and endure all things in the name of love, that we are eager to put the worst construction often on somebody's motives rather than the best. Well, Jesus says neglect or indifference is a symptom of looking down on, holding in contempt. You know the idea. Uh, you dads have done it, uh, maybe even at the camp here, uh, when uh, you're set up to uh, uh, a nice conversation with somebody and then one of your children comes in and, you know, Dad, we want to do this, or can we go swimming, and could we do that? And you just sort of ignore them because you've got a good conversation going. And every one of us who are fathers have done that. It's one of our besetting sins. Now, our children need to learn how to be patient and wait and say, excuse me, and all of those nice mannerly things. But a lot of times, we just look down on them, which is to say we don't pay any attention to them. They can be eagerly, earnestly seeking for our attention, and we simply put them aside because they're just little kids. And after all, we're involved in a conversation that's very important, very meaningful, very satisfying. 
Well, Jesus says that kind of attitude of neglect, of indifference towards his little ones is a serious problem, and we need to avoid it. And the reason he speaks that way, like we saw this morning in, in the passage uh, in Luke 17, is because he has a deep concern for his own little ones. Now, when Jesus uses the phrase little ones here, he's not talking about children particularly, although sometimes when Jesus uses that phrase, he is referring to children who are his own. But as B.B. Warfield points out in his little article, Christ's Little Ones, in his Collected Shorter Writings, Volume 1, here our Savior, and this is a quote from Warfield, our Savior calls his disciples these little ones because he thinks of them as the particular objects of his protecting care and gives in this designation of them a supreme expression to the depth and tenderness of his love for them. It is thus the diminutive of endearment by way of eminence, the purest expression among all his affectionate names for his disciples of that fondness of his love for them. They were his friends and his children, his sheep and his lambs, but above all these they were his little ones, his little ones who needed him and whom he would never fail in their times of need, even though their name, their times of need be all times as indeed they are. I think Warfield's put his finger on what Jesus is concerned about when he uses this language of little ones to refer to you and I. We are his little ones because we always need him and he always cares about us. And he expresses that care in this particular passage, in this particular parable. Jesus is concerned about overlooking, neglecting those who are wandering and straying. And as a good shepherd, he's concerned not to lose any of his sheep. He doesn't want one single lamb lost. And you know, you might keep in the back of your mind the, the different reasons why people might be concerned that way. Why can't you afford to lose one? Well, you know, a hireling might approach that question in one regard. He will calculate the finances of the flock and how many he needs and how much they need to weigh when they go to market for him to make a certain kind of profit. And he might decide one or two or three more or less is no big deal. He can afford to lose one or lose two or lose ten. But a shepherd who loves his sheep can't afford to lose one, not because economics are involved, but because of his personal pastoral concern for the sheep. And that's what Jesus is reflecting in this particular story. And the reason Jesus shows it is because the Heavenly Father himself shows it. In the last part of verse 10, Jesus says, For I tell you that their angels, the angels of his little ones in heaven, always see the face of my Father in heaven. That last part of verse 10 is one of the most enigmatic phrases in the New Testament. It's very difficult to get at just what Jesus is talking about there. But certainly at the heart of the point that he's making is the attitude of the Heavenly Father towards these little ones, an attitude of deep compassion and personal concern which registers, registers itself in his immediate presence in heaven. Now, in that same article by B.B. Warfield and another one that's a companion to it, he does wrestle exegetically with the question of just what these angels standing before the face of God in heaven are. He considers whether or not it might be, as some have suggested, the idea of guardian angels, some representative angel that has charge over a particular little one of Christ, one of his disciples, who is sort of the liaison person with the throne in heaven and 
keeps the father informed about the condition of that little one. But for reasons that we won't go into here, you can read the article for yourself, perhaps, if you're interested. He rejects that idea as not really satisfying what's going on here in the context and opts rather, rather for the idea that these angels really refer to some kind of an identity of the little ones as a person, but not physically present. It's not exactly the idea of their ghost or their spirit that is represented there, but somehow or other, the Father is aware in a direct and a personal way, and this language is to express the immediacy and the intimacy of his recollections of them, his concern for them. And because they are before his presence in heaven, he is immediately and directly concerned for them. So the central point of the phrase, whatever it means exactly, is that the Father has the most direct, the most personal, the most intimate concern for the well-being of his little ones, even though we might imagine that because God the Father is far away in heaven, transcendent above the earth, he's kind of remote. How can he keep track of all these little ones? Well, you know, from a systematic theological point, we know that God is everywhere. He is present in his creation. But still, sometimes we can have a sense, even though we confess that good theology, God is present everywhere, he's here tonight. Sometimes when we think of our heavenly Father on his throne in heaven, there's a sense of remoteness. So Jesus kind of closes the gap by saying, those who represent these little ones, are immediately before my Father's face in heaven, and therefore he knows who's in the fold and who's in the wilderness, and he is concerned not to lose one of them. And so the Father's will for his Son, and the Son's will for his disciples, and for each one of us to a degree, is that we share that same intimate, personal concern for one another, especially in those times when we are wandering and straying. And there's really more to it than that. Jesus says in verse 14, in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should be lost. The Father is not willing. It is not his good pleasure to lose any of his sheep. And that, reference, uh, that has reference to his flock, his church, his people as covenantally identified. We are the fold. We are those who belong to God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand, as the psalmist says. And therefore, as he considers us as his people and one strays, he's not willing to lose one of his true sheep. And one of the wonderful things about church discipline when it's properly practiced within the church of Jesus Christ is that that process of faithful shepherding, of faithful discipline, will distinguish on the one hand the true shepherd from the false shepherd, and the true sheep from the false sheep, or from the goats, as they're described elsewhere in Scripture. Because the true shepherd will go seeking, the false shepherd, the hireling, will say, we can afford to lose a few, I'm not going to go looking. It distinguishes between shepherds and hired hands. And it di distinguishes between true sheep, who hear the Father's voice and turn from their sin when they're straying, and the false sheep who hears the father's voice and runs all the faster in the opposite direction, hardening his heart against the Lord. But the father is concerned not to lose any one of his true sheep, and so he has instituted for his church a procedure which will make that clear 
so that we can act accordingly. God's biblical method of discipline is designed to accomplish His goal that not one of His true sheep, not one of His little ones, will ever be lost. So when we practice discipline, the way the Bible outlines it with the attitude and the goal and the motive and the concern that we've been talking about this week, it always will be good for the church. It always will be beneficial for us. It simply cannot fail to do what God intends it to do, to identify the true sheep and to call them back again to restoration and to identify the false sheep, the wolves or the goats, and make it clear that they went out from us so that it might be manifest that they were not of us, as John says in 1 John. So it will always accomplish God's good purpose. It is, after all, a ministry of the Word, and God's Word never fails to accomplish His purposes for it. So the method that Jesus gives, then, is to seek and restore the one that is straying, even at the expense of leaving behind the many who are not straying. And Jesus asks you and I a question as he did his disciples. What do you think? Here's the problem. Here's the situation. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hill, uh, uh, leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? How does that scenario strike you? Does that make sense? Will a shepherd do that if he has a hundred sheep and he loses one? Will he leave the 99 and go and look for the one? Or will he say, that's not bad. I've figured that into my calculations. I can lose one, and I'll still make a profit. Well, I think you'd say, wouldn't you, that it really depends on what your attitude is towards those sheep. Jesus talks about a hireling in John 10, who when he sees the wolf coming, we're not even talking about one sheep wandering away. We've got all the sheep together. Everybody's protected. But here comes the wolf, and what does the hireling do? He beats it out the back door of the fold. He is not going to stick around to risk his life for the sheep. That's the way the hireling is. It isn't worth it. He's measuring his faithfulness towards shepherding the sheep in terms of what it's going to cost him or what it's going to profit him. But a true shepherd will be concerned over those sheep and he will not let the one go, even if he has to leave the 99 behind in safety and go out and seek the one that's in danger. This story isn't about uh, sheep, but when I read this parable, it reminds me of one of the chapters in James Harriet's first book, uh, All Creatures Great and Small. And he's talking uh, one morning, the uh, Harriet you know, character with uh, Siegfried, you know, the vet that he works for. And, uh, and Siegfried asks him, he says, you think these, these wealthy uh, farmers and... and uh, Ranchers here uh, care whether they lose a few of their animals when they've got thousands and thousands of sheep or hundreds and hundreds of heads of cattle or, or horses and so forth. I mean, do you think it really matters to them? They say the little farmer, you know, he's got just one or two uh, head of livestock or something, and he mentions one fellow who had a, had a pig. He raised one pig at a time, and then he butchered the pig. And he says that the man became so attached to that pig that after they butchered the pig, uh, the man would sit in the kitchen at the table, weeping his head off while his wife cut up the pig and, and got it ready for, uh, you know, for the family to eat. I mean, he became so attached personally to that pig that even though he raised it for the purpose of butchering it for food, he just couldn't get over the loss of that one pig. Uh, 
any of you kids that have been involved in 4-H may have gone through that same kind of trauma, you know. Uh, you're raising it to become future farmers, which means you're supposed to be able to let these animals go to the butcher uh, without getting upset about it, and yet it tears your heart out. But if it's not one pig, if it's 5,000 pigs, you know, what's one pig, more or less? You don't form a personal relationship with all these pigs. Well, in that chapter, Harriet tells the story then of being called out later on to tend to a couple of horses that a man had, and he had hundreds of horses. He was one of the most wealthy landowners, one of the most wealthy ranchers in the whole district. And everybody knew that. Hundreds and hundreds of horses, horses filling all these barns and buildings around. Well, when he got out there, the uh, farmer, hardly having anything to say, said, come with me, there's a couple of horses that you have to take care of their teeth. Well, he knew that that meant probably grinding down the molars on these horses or maybe making an extraction or something. But the farmer headed off through the barns and across the fields with Harriet in tow. And he was carrying this huge uh, box of instruments to work on the teeth uh, of the horses. And he kept talking about how he had to shift it from one arm to the other. And, and as the uh, farmer walked through the barnyard, he speared a uh, part of a bale of hay and threw the, the, uh, the pitchfork over his shoulder and just took off. Uh, at a clip across the field, and they marched down the hill and down the hill, and Harriet's trudging along, changing his uh, instrument box from hand to hand, and finally they get down to the bottom of the hill in this place. I imagine like looking out there, and there in the bottom is a stream, and uh, at the bottom of the hill there are two very old plow horses standing in the stream. And uh, as they come down to the edge of the stream, uh, the farmer whistles, and up comes these two old plow horses out of the stream like old friends. Um, and they have a look in the mouth, and, and Harriet knew by looking at them there were old, old horses. And he said, how old are these horses? And he says, well, you're the vet, you figured it out, look at their teeth. And he opens their mouth, and he decides he can't even count up how old these horses are. And he asks the man, how long have they been down here? Well, for 12 years. Well, he has to file down the teeth because they've just been eating grass, and, and their teeth are overgrown, and some of them are grown so far out that he has to extract one of the teeth. But... Um, Turns out that these horses hadn't done a lick of work for this man for 12 years. But he kept them there, and he fed them, and he walked down to the bottom of the hill every day to feed them personally, even though he had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of horses. And as Harriet left that night and went back to the veterinary surgery, uh, he had an answer for Siegfried. What do the wealthy landowners who have hundreds and hundreds of horses think about their animals? They care about them, every one. Well, that's the shepherd's attitude. He uh, has a hundred sheep, but it's the one that's missing that he's concerned about. And that's why it's such an apt picture for the uh, Lord Jesus himself, as well as those who would imitate him in caring for the sheep. And Jesus knows that he has called his disciples to be shepherds. So, of course, the answer to the question, will he leave the 99 and go out and look for the one that's straying, is yes, he will. He'll go seek and recover and rejoice in the one that he restores. And we should expect that from those whom God has called as shepherds. This is sort of parenthetical, but I would just urge you as the people of God, you know, uh, discipline is tough on your elders. That may or may not come as a surprise to you. Uh, if you think it's low on your list of priorities, it's... Uh, it's something that sessions don't delight in either. At least I've never, I've never met a session that said, oh boy, we get to discipline somebody. And yet often, you as the people of God, 
treat them as if it is their delight to have to come down hard on somebody. They just enjoy censuring somebody. Well, I would just remind you that God has called them to be shepherds, and by His grace He has given them shepherds' hearts, and they discipline you as the flock with great love and often with a great deal of pain. And the only thing that makes it more painful than that is for the sheep to despise the shepherd that comes looking for them, or for the 99 that stay home where it's safe to despise the shepherds for going and looking for the one that is straying. God's called your elders to be shepherds, and you ought to expect them to act like shepherds and to have hearts like shepherds as they go, even when they have to use the rod and the staff of God's discipline in order to pull that stray out of the thicket and get it headed back towards the fold. We owe them that in the love of Christ. You see, the shepherd isn't moved by numbers or convenience or profit. He's moved by a loving, compassionate concern for the real need of the wandering sheep. He knows that if that sheep is left alone out there in the desert by itself, it will die. And to neglect it in that condition, to leave it alone in that condition, is to ensure that it will die. And that the shepherd cannot do, because he loves the sheep that God has given to him. Now Jesus explains this metaphor of seeking and recovering the wandering sheep as he goes on in verse 15 to outline the process of restorative discipline as it's to take place in the church. So when you wonder, what should I do? How can I leave the 99 and go seek the one? You have to do it by following through on the procedure that Jesus gives in Matthew 18, 15 and following. And that's what we'll be looking at tomorrow. There's one more thing I want to say before we leave this passage and look at a couple of others real quickly. And that is that by seeking and recovering the straying lamb, you really enter into the mission of Jesus himself, the great shepherd of the sheep. Verse 11, you will notice in your NIV, is gone. Did you notice that? Verse 11 is gone, right, because the NIV follows the critical text uh, which, uh, based on certain manuscripts, has concluded that verse 11 was not part of the original manuscript, uh, the, uh, the best text, and it has been left out. If you have a King James Version, 11 will be there. Well, the reasons for the omission there are that uh, it doesn't appear that that verse was in the earliest text. The verse reads, for those of you who only have the NIV, the Son of Man came to save what was lost. Now, it's probably true that that wasn't in the original. It probably was borrowed from Luke 19, verse 10, where in the oldest and best manuscripts that verse appears. Someone, somewhere along the line, thought, you know, that's a good interpretive remark. They call it a gloss upon this passage as well, so it got inserted at this point, even though it wasn't there in the original. So it does at least represent a very ancient interpretation of this particular parable. And I think it's worth just noting that and reflecting on that because in Luke 19, verse 10, of course, Jesus is saying, I came to earth to die in order to seek and save that which was lost. And in this passage, Jesus says, my disciples will share my Father's concern to seek and to save that which is lost. And you and I, when we practice restorative discipline, are really entering into the work of Jesus himself as the good shepherd of the sheep. 
We don't lay down our lives for the flock. We don't offer an atoning sacrifice for their redemption. Jesus' work is unique. But the same motive that drove him out to Calvary to recover the lost ought to drive you and I out to seek and restore and recover one another when we are straying, when we are wandering. And so we enter into the Good Shepherd's work in our own way, as creatures, as obedient servants. Jesus' mission was to seek and to save. Your mission, in a different way, is still to seek and to save. And so by the faithful exercise of discipline, looking for the lost, recovering the lost, restoring the lost, you imitate Jesus Christ in his own work of salvation and recovery. Now, there are a couple of other things that I want us to look at real quickly before we close tonight, and uh, they come from two other passages that remind us of the kind of attitude that we ought to have. On the bottom of page 12 in your outline, number 2, Roman numeral 2, you need to shepherd your heart while you are shepherding the straying brother. That is, you need to be concerned about your attitude, your heart, while you are trying to bring your brother back. And one of the most dangerous things to do is to go looking for the lost with a heart that hasn't yet been brought under control. Remember what Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 reminds us. It's a wise warning. We ought to keep it in mind all the time. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. If you're going to do anything in the Christian life well, you have to guard your heart because that is fr that from which that care, that concern will flow. Well, Jesus reminds us in Matthew 7 about how we are to go to our brother, how we are to seek him and recover him. This is a familiar passage, the beginning of the 7th chapter of Matthew. Do not judge, says Jesus, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus says you have to exercise care in judging in matters of discipline. Now, oftentimes, and you've probably heard this many times yourself, this verse is used as an argument for why we ought never to judge another person. I mean, after all, doesn't it say, judge not that you too, or, or you too will be judged? And so it's taken as an absolute kind of a statement, never under any circumstances ought you to judge someone else. If you take it that way, of course, you run afoul of other passages in the New Testament from the lips of Jesus where he says, don't judge according to appearances, but judge righteous judgments. Now, is Christ contradicting himself? Don't judge, but judge righteous judgments? No. He's saying the same thing in both passages because he qualifies that original statement, do not judge, or you too will be judged, by saying then in verse 2, the same way you judge others, you will be judged. So that's the warning. Not whether to judge or not to judge, but to be very careful because we'll be on the receiving end of the same kind of judgment as we pass out. 
And so the warning is not against judgment, discernment, but rather against judgmentalism. And uh, I think a rough and ready def definition of uh, judgmentalism is rebuking someone in order to prove that you are right. Rebuking someone so to prove that you are right. But godly judgment is to rebuke someone so that they might be changed and be right. That's the difference. Do I want to criticize you or do I want to rebuke you or correct you so that I can prove that I was doing it right and you were doing it wrong and once I've done that, that's the end of the story? Isn't that oftentimes the way we judge one another? The point is not, is anybody going to get any better? It's just, do you know that I'm right and you're wrong? That's what Jesus is warning us against. But if, as we've seen in other passages, our concern is to point out a sin so that there can be repentance and restoration and healing, then the point is not to prove that I'm right, but to help you get right with God through repentance and forgiveness and restoration. So Jesus warns us that we need to be careful when we are judging one another. And he warns us, first of all, that that care has to be in the use of the standard of judgment. He says there in verse 2, the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, the standard, the rule, the criteria that you use, it will be measured to you. You will be judged by that same standard. And so if you judge people according to what you like or dislike, then don't be surprised when they turn right around and pass judgment on you on the basis of what they like or dislike. If you want to be hypercritical of other people, then don't be surprised when they're hypercritical of you. If nobody can please you no matter what they say or do, then don't be surprised when you can't please anybody else when they judge you. But if you use the Word of God as the criteria of judgment, if you say, I will judge on the basis of what Scripture says, then you're saying at the same time, I will gladly be judged by the same standard of Scripture. And so whenever you're going to a brother to point out his fault, you better be real sure that you have a biblical issue that you're trying to deal with if you're going to call him to repent. Now, we were saying earlier this afternoon in, in response to a question, there may be things that you want to talk to somebody else about that really aren't questions of sin or righteousness, but of preference, and you can approach them in that way. But you may not go and call a person to repent for a sin if they haven't sinned. And that's why sometimes the first approach in restoration is to go tentatively, going to ask a question. This is how it looks to me. Am I seeing it correctly? Am I understanding it properly? Is there really a sin here that we have to deal with? Or when I get the explanation and I understand the full story, maybe I find out there really isn't a problem, or at least not a sin. And then there's no need to pass judgment. There's no need to call for repentance. So the standard is very, very important. Is the standard the Word of God? And if it is, then you can apply the golden rule. I will judge by the Word of God because I want to be judged by the Word of God. That's the criteria. That's the standard of judgment. But Jesus also says we need to use care in the manner of coming to a judgment. We've got to make sure that we can see what we're dealing with, recognizing the sinful disqualifications that often are a part of our own life. And he does that in terms of beams and specks, specks of sawdust or planks, as the NIV puts it. If you've got this big beam in your own eye, and then you're going to do a little microsurgery on your neighbor's eye to get the speck out, you better forget about it. 
You're no more qualified to do that than is a surgeon who puts the blindfold on and then goes up to the microscope to look in while he's going to mend the nerve endings on your eyeball. You don't want a doctor acting that way. And um, that can be an attitude. Perhaps in a confrontation you are so furious that you really can't see straight. And then you're going to go and set this person right. It can't be done. can't be done well. can't be done effectively. Before you ever go to another person, you have to say, what is it in this confrontation that I have contributed to? And it's remarkable how often you find out when you do that, that uh, when you get the beam out of your own eye, what you thought was a speck in your neighbor's eye wasn't even there. It wasn't his problem. It was your problem. I guess husbands are guilty of this sometimes, you know, when they get real pushed out of shape at their wife, uh, and uh, they're going to straighten her out, and then they uh, do a little evaluation, and they realize that you know, they, they had a really lousy day at work, and they're angry at somebody else, and the wife just happened to get in the way when they came home and blew up. So when they repent of that anger and that resentment that came from someplace else, then they go back to look at their wife, and they say, now, what was it that I was mad at her about? I can't, can't remember. It wasn't a problem. You, when you get the beam out of your own eye, you may either see that there's no speck in your neighbor's eye, or you can see clearly to know just what the problem is. And as I was suggesting to one of you in a little private conversation this afternoon, when you go to a brother and you go and say, this seems to be a problem to me, but I want you to explain yourself. I want to find out why and what, especially when your problem may be with what you imagine was a motive rather than just an act. You may learn an awful lot about yourself in that first conversation as well as about your neighbor. And then you'll know just what you need to repent for and what they still need to repent for so that the reconciliation can take place. Seeing clearly is vital to doing this work effectively, and that means we've got to deal with the beams in our own eyes as well as the speck in our neighbor's eyes. So Jesus says, be careful about how you come to a judgment. And then the third area of care is in the evidence that you use in making a judgment. Here you have to look a little bit later in the uh, chapter where Jesus makes his points about the uh, tree and its fruit in verse 15 and following. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. And that's a general kind of principle. It applies not only to false prophets, but it apply, applies to other kinds of passing judgment. You have to make sure that there is evidence that is clear, that you're not just dreaming things up that you think might be a problem. And here I think we're especially in danger because of our tendency to put the worst construction on what somebody else does. We might be offended, we might have our feelings hurt, and we simply assume at the outset that it must have been some malicious intent on the part of our neighbor. And that's what really gets us worked up. And so there isn't any real evidence. And when we go and we find out about the evidence, we realize that there is a problem with our perception rather than with what really went on. Jay Adams, in one of his books, maybe it's in the one on church discipline, uses the example of uh, you know, the lady who had been away from church for four weeks. She'd been on a vacation to Europe, and she just couldn't wait to get back and see her friend Mary and tell her all about her trip. And, uh, and uh, she... 
uh, waits for the sermon, you know, and it was me preaching, and so it was a long sermon, and the service went on forever. And finally, though, the uh, benediction was pronounced, and she saw Mary across the room, and she runs across the room, so glad to see Mary. She really wants to tell her all about her trip, and Mary takes one look at her, switches her nose up in the air, and walks out of the room. And, of course, her friend is just heartbroken and leaps to the immediate conclusion, well, what have I done wrong? What's Mary upset with me about? I haven't seen her for four weeks. How could she be mad at me? And she thinks about this for a couple of minutes, and pretty soon she's pretty worked up over the problem with Mary sticking her nose in the air and running out. But she read Jay Adams' book, and she realized she better go settle it with Mary. So she scoots right out into the parking lot and catches Mary as she's standing next to her car. And she goes up to Mary and she says, why did you walk away from me like that? And she says, oh, I'm so sorry, but I had had to sneeze for the last 15 minutes in church, and as you walked up, I could tell it was coming, and I didn't want to sneeze in your face, so I came out here to get a Kleenex. It wasn't mean, nasty, and malicious. It was courtesy. And yet, the temptation is to read things wrongly. Now, that's an extreme kind of an example. But oftentimes you will find that if you're looking for evidence, is there really a reason to be concerned? There isn't any evidence there. And you're just imagining it. And Jesus says, be careful in using evidence to make your judgment Certainly when you come to formal discipline and sessions are trying to evaluate evidence, it's very, very important that they have the facts straight if they're going to pass a proper judgment. The general rubric, the general interpretive principle for what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount throughout is that we need to both hear and do what the Word of God says. And so we need to listen to how Jesus says we should engage in this kind of confrontation and then do it. The last passage that I want us to just look at for a moment has to do with cultivating a habitual attitude of gentleness and discipline. If you look at Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, there the Apostle Paul gives us some exhortations about recovering and restoring one another and how to do it. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Jesus, uh, the Apostle here gives us some instructions about the attitude that we ought to have in administering discipline, and it is summarized in this idea of gentleness. Now, in his book, Ready to Restore, Jay Adams has gone through this passage in a great deal of detail. Some of you have read it, some of you can read it, so I'm not going to take time with it here. But the point of the passage is that we need to be ready to put somebody back into a useful condition. That's what the idea of restoration here is. It's the same word that's used for mending nets. A net that used to work for catching fish gets big, big holes torn in it, so you need to mend it so that it will work again for catching fish. A brother trapped in sin used to be useful for godliness. Now he's all torn up. He's got big holes in him. He can't work at godliness anymore, and you must put him back together. But the attitude in doing that must be one of gentleness. 
And so there are a few reminders here, and I'm just going to leave them with you without a lot of comment, because I think they're fairly obvious. First of all, remember that your brother, even though he is willful and responsible for his actions, may well be trapped in sin. The idea is that the offender is, he is uh, hobbled, he is ensnared, he is trapped by that sin. Now, if you've ever had sin sneak up on you looking real good and then pounce and show you how ugly it can be once it's got you pinned to the mat, you know what Paul is talking about here. It's not saying you're not responsible for your actions. It's not saying that you don't choose to sin when you sin. But it's also recognizing that sin is deceitful and it can dominate us. And we can be trapped and ensnared by it. And so just like... It would be a cruel, cruel taskmaster that found its little burrow loaded with sticks and then breaking under that load and falling on the ground. He wouldn't go up and kick the donkey until the donkey got up again. You would recognize that that donkey can't move until he gets some help. And if we go and kick our brother while he is trapped in his sin by verbally or otherwise showing an insensitivity to his need, and you see, we're just like the taskmaster that kicks the donkey that's broken under the load. What do you do for the donkey that's overloaded? You pick the burden up so the donkey can get back on his feet and get ready to go again. And you do that with great gentleness, great care and concern for the beast of burden. But when you find your brother trapped in sin, in sin you need to set him free, lift his burden with a real concern for him, a real gentle attitude. That may mean you have to tell him some very painful things about himself and about his need to repent. But that can be done with a clear evidence of a concern that he really turn and be restored. So remember that your brother may be trapped in his sin. And then remember to watch yourself, says Paul, because you too are easily tempted. You are not standing on the solid rock and uh, pulling somebody out on the quicksand. You know, you're more like standing on the edge where it's a little slippery and the footing isn't very good and you're going to give the big heave-ho, but the real danger is that you might slip and fall right into the same quicksand with your brother. So watch out, because you can be tempted in the same way. I think that's why forgiven sinners, the more they repent and the more God heals them, are the more effective in restoring one another because they realize the dangers they realize the traps, and there's a kind of a brokenness that comes to the heart of a person who has been forgiven much that makes them very sensitive and caring for others who are in that same kind of position. It's, uh, it's amazing how often, and maybe you've experienced this, that God will take you through a crisis, through a trial, lead you to repentance and restore you, and then put you immediately in touch with somebody else that's in the same trap because you know and you're going to be more alert in restoring them and more compassionate. And Paul warns us to watch out because if we think we are something, we're deceiving ourselves. When we compare ourselves with one another, and again, this is a danger in restoring somebody else, we can fall into the trap of the Pharisee. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. Compared to them, Paul says when we compare ourselves with ourselves, if we think we are something when we are nothing, we're deceiving ourselves. And so the old statement, which we sometimes say just as an empty cliche, there but for the grace of God go I, is a very real, important truth 
to remember when we're restoring somebody who has fallen. Remember that this disciplinary burden-bearing is the law of Christ. Again, it's not optional. It's not something you can do if you want to, but you can let it go if you don't. Bear one another's burdens, says the Holy Spirit, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then finally, cultivating this kind of understanding about your brother who is trapped, about yourself, who can be easily tempted and deceive himself into thinking that he has no problems, understanding that burden-bearing is the law of Christ, realizing these things will give you a habitual frame of heart, your thoughts and your affections, which is gentle. Remember that Paul says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. He doesn't say restore such a one gently. It's possible for very ungentle people to act gently sometimes. You know, some pretty hard-nosed old guys who can uh, treat people generally very ungently when their little granddaughter crawls up on their knee and says, Granddaddy, I, I love you. They can behave very gently, but they don't have a spirit of gentleness because if it's anybody else, they could get clobbered. It's not just be gentle when you can, but it's cultivate a spirit, an attitude, a character of heart and mind which is gentle. So that in every situation, in every circumstance, you will respond with gentleness. Not just when it's somebody that you really like or somebody that you really pity or something like that. So we need to think about how we are going to lift one another's burdens and care for the straying and the lost. I suppose sometimes we measure our burden for the lost by trying to figure out how zealous we are for foreign missions, you know, because the lost are always out there in some foreign country. I challenge you to measure your burden for the lost by thinking about how zealous you are for restoring one another right in your own churches and in your own family. Because there are lost people, straying people, wandering people in your own congregations. And if you haven't done anything to go find them, seek them, restore them, and recover them, then you have no real burden for the lost, no matter how much you imagine that you do. So may God give us grace to use the right standard, to have the right attitude, and to have that burning zeal and concern to seek and to recover that which is lost. Now tomorrow we'll be looking at the procedure in detail, how to do it. But I hope that these first messages that we've had this week will convince you that we need to do it, that we have to need, have a special burden for this ministry because it's a special burden of our Heavenly Father's heart. And to remind ourselves of that as we close, let's sing once again uh, number 140.